You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Diary Podcasts with your host, Kai. Perfect. Welcome back to another podcast of the Pre-Hospital Diaries. I'm here with Dr. Crystal O'Neill today and we're talking about anesthesia. Hello, um, hello. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, so we're talking about anaesthesia and I basically want you to go over it and your experience and what you do. So what, what do you do? What is your, your role? And Well, basically, look, I'm going to say first off as to uh, well, a little bit about me. So um, I have primarily worked in anaesthesia for, well, it's been a number of years, actually. Um, so I've worked across multiple hospitals. Um, I did start training in anaesthesia for a number of years, and then I've now actually switched over into uh, rural generalist training, which basically removing the gobbledygook out of that means that it's uh, through the College of Rural and Remote Medicine, which further gobbledygook removed, is it means that you work in a rural setting with a background of general practice with extended training. So the extended training that I would be doing is for anaesthesia, but you can do it in other things. So it could be emergency medicine, could be obstetrics, it could be numerous other bits and pieces you might like. Awesome. And what hospital were you working at? Or you've just been through every I've been, hospital? I've been through most of them here, <laughs> but I've just finished up at uh, St John of God Midland after two years. Um, but I have worked around pretty much all the major metropolitan ones here. So I've done my time at Charlie's, I've been at Royal Perth, um, some time up in Joondalup, Fiona Stanley, uh, Fremantle. So yeah, around a few places. Awesome. Awesome. And how long have you been studying for? Oh just... God, it's been so many years. <laughs> so look, put it this way, um, for me to get to, to where I've kind of ended up, I've been a little bit more, um, a bit more scenic than probably most. But um, so a lot of people these days, when you're looking at an anaesthesia career or an anaesthesia-oriented career, will be needing at least a, you need a basic medical degree to start off with, which these days is not exactly basic because you need to go and do an undergraduate degree of some sort for most, most places. So for me, I've done an, un, I've done an undergraduate uh, degree at Charles Sturt University in New South Wales, um, and that was a BMed Sci um, and a, a research degree because I thought, oh, okay, why not? Um, and then worked in uh, laboratories for a while, primarily anatomical pathology, cytology, all that kind of stuff. And then I decided that <laughs> it wasn't for me. Um, so I ended up doing postgrad med. Um, and then after working at Royal Perth Hospital for three years, I ended up going and uh, starting in anaesthesia training. So that was 2017. So um, the, the main thing is that it's a long slog. When you embark on anaesthesia training, it's usually a minimum of five years. And that's if you get through everything all nice and rosy and all. Um, some of us do, some of us take a bit longer. <laughs> some of us change our mind. <laughs> um, but look, basically, you're looking at many years. So there's, there's no, really no shortcut to this. But the thing is, is that at the same time, people embark on all sorts of things in all walks of life. Totally agree. Yep. Totally agree. So it's been a fun ride. It has. It has. Yep. And the ride hasn't stopped. I don't know where it's going yet. That's good. So you are now with RFDS. Yes. So I'll be starting with RFDS um, in the next month or so. Awesome. Awesome. That'd be cool. So we're going to talk about um, anaesthesia in the hospital. I yep. felt obviously this is a pre-hospital sort of um, podcast but I wanted mm. I feel like it's important to understand as a pre-hospital clinician to 
understand what they do once we drop the patient off. So I thought oh, this would absolutely. be yep, yep. So I thought this would and, be awesome. And it's also really good for me too because then there's there's potentially things that get brought up where I'll be like, oh, actually no, I hadn't thought of that, or oh, that's a really good thing to keep in mind. So yeah, definitely, I think that that can be a two way street. Hmm. So just your overview of the anaesthetic registrar. Uh, what's your roles and you know what would your day sort of include? So look, basically, uh, like. For anaesthesia registrar roles, so it means that you, for a start off, is you've generally got some experience in anaesthesia or quick care proceeding. Sometimes you don't, um, especially if you've just absolutely started off in the training program. But you're always, basically, you're always buddied with somebody. Um, so there's always, um, the way a lot of hospitals work is you have a lot of consultant anaesthetists. So a consultant anaesthetist is, so that is somebody who has got their got their letters, as we would say. So they've got their FANSCA, so they've got their fellowship of the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists. Um, you then have a series of hierarchy because medicine loves hierarchy. Um, so you've got fellows. So for example, a fellow is somebody who is, um, they, they've done all of their exams and they've, you know, but they have a period of time. It's almost like a provisional boss, like a provisional consultant job basically. Um, and there's, and, and that's an opportunity for people to uh, go ahead and, you know, sort of pick a particular area of interest they might have. And then you've got registrars, so that's where I've primarily worked in, and I've done it for a number of years. So I've, I could probably, I can fairly say I'm reasonably senior from that perspective. Um, but basically, what it means is you could be doing anything from, uh, look, you could be assisting with the anaesthesia in terms of, you might be, you know, making make sure a patient's prepared. You might be negotiating to making sure that someone's had their appropriate management or that they actually get to theatre at a you know, reasonable time. Um, it could be, you know, you might be going, all right, cool, I'm going to just pull off some extra bloods. Let's get some IV access. Let's just chase up a couple of other things. Basically, it's because this is a, it is a training role, then the idea is that you're basically learning how to do what your consultant nieces can do, but it's in a way that it's an awful lot of repetition. It's going to basically be a lot for you guys as well. Same thing. So it might be, you know, it, it, a lot of it can sound very sort of scut work kind of thing, but you do get the opportunity to do a lot of procedural things. You get a, you know, there is a scope of independence that you're allowed to have as your experience grows. Mm, awesome. That's cool. That's cool. And you've enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. I think it's, um, and, and the thing is that in different places, different experiences, and there'll be some things that you'll go, oh wow, that was amazing. I feel like I learnt so much, and others you might not, but you end up, you know, you can walk away from that and then go, actually no, there's a lot in the background that you sort of probably don't really consider much, and you do. You you take a lot away from it. And you get a variety of patients. You oh, see, you yeah. would see everything. Yeah, you do. And I think this is the other thing. When you're working around different places as well, um, you have a different demographic. You will have uh, exposure to different consultants. You'll have exposure to different practices, and that's I think that's the beauty of it, really. So, you know, not not everybody that is you know if if you're going to be working at for example, PCH, yes, that's going to be a paediatric population, okay? You kind of know where you're getting there. But for a lot of hospitals, you're going to get a wide variety of things. So it will be not just looking at adult versus paediatric medicine, but you obviously can involve obstetrics, gynae, um, and you're obviously, you know, and, and there's further specialty areas as well. So, you know, it might be some, like you might be working within cardiothoracics. It could be, you name it. You, there's so many different things you can do. Mm -hmm. So you say it could be in cardiothoracics one day, could be an obstetrics one day you just sort of get handed whatever well 
In terms of when it comes down to the subspecialties, so of which, so cardiothoracics would be one of those. So usually when people are rotating through cardiothoracics, they are pretty much like they are, they are rotating through that rotation and they have a period of, let's say six months or a year or so in that time. So they tend to stick to that particular discipline. However, for a lot of, you know, for, for a lot of other disciplines of anesthesia, we would consider that to be uh, like, you know, like a general, like, you know, sort of a general scope of anesthesia. So that's where you could be, you know, you, you could be in an emergency theatre in the morning, you could be doing orthopaedics in the afternoon, you could be, you know, who knows, you might be covering, you know, obstetrics, you, you could be covering, uh, you know, like if there's a, if, if there's, you know, like pain calls, if there's, you, you know, like there, there's a lot of different things you can do. And you were part of the uh, Met, Met call team at um, Midlands? Yes, yeah. So the MET team, for those who don't know, uh, so that's what they call the medical emergency team. Um, they do, some places have slightly different names, but basically all it is, is that when you press that lovely red button that's behind the patient in a, uh, you know, when the patient's in the bed or on the floor or wherever, um, you make friends, is usually what I say <laughs> to people. So you'll generally get an anaesthetic registrar, you'll get an ICU registrar, um, you will get a medical registrar, you'll get an RMO, so a resident medical officer or, or an intern, so basically a junior, like a you know, someone within their first you know, two to three years of training. Um, they will also attend. You'll also have some, you'll also have some very experienced nursing staff. So often an ICU level trained or, and or emergency medicine, very senior nurse that will also come. Mm -hmm. So between us, those calls are to have a rapid response. So basically something's happened with a patient, it's been alerted, what are we gonna do about it? And do we need to do something quickly? Mm, awesome. And that's where you would get your variety as well. You would, you, do. you could be called to something very, very minor or something absolutely that's major. Right. It could be anything from you know someone's had a blood pressure recorded at eight, you know, of uh, eighty nine over fifty, and the modifications on the chart say ninety, and someone's called it being very, very meticulous. Uh, <laughs> no comment. Um, but <laughs> but then you get the full blown. You know, you could have someone in full cardiac arrest. So you just never quite know what you're going to walk into. So that's kind of you know that that's kind of fun in its own right as well. I Definitely. won't I won't lie. <laughs> Definitely. So I think we'll go into the preparation of how you're going to prepare for a patient, mm. um, your steps, who you communicate with, etc. Yep. If you could. So basically, look, uh, so the first thing is, is that when we have a patient that has been, uh, you know, that, that usually there's been some sort of discussion that's been between a, you know, like a surgical or a medical team with anesthesia. So that's often done through the anesthetist or whoever happens to be the lucky person that has been asked the, the question of, hey, can we do this thing with this, with this patient of mine because I want to find out this thing or this person has that. So... What we normally do is, it's, it is basically risk assessment, really. It's used to looking at risk versus benefit because, well, life is just that, basically. Um, so one of the first things I would do is you obviously want to try and get a little bit of background information on the patient. So obviously medical records, very useful, but of course not everyone has access to those things. So you're trying to, you may have to rely on sources of info that you might not necessarily find to be the most reliable um, but usually for me in a hospital setting what would happen is I'd have a look and to see if they've got any obvious medical records any other history um, that the referring team have actually laid out they might say oh this person's had this 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 and we want to do that and you're like okay um, but of course there is no substitute for actually going and seeing the bloody patient so mm -hmm. um, so what you do <laughs> is you go and find the patient which that in its own right can be also challenging <laughs> uh, depending on where they are and we do a, we actually do an anaesthetic assessment. So as we keep what we call an anaesthetic record. So it's 
pretty well standardised across hospitals, but essentially what it is, it is a snapshot of what is happening with that patient right now. And it goes through their full medical history, their full anaesthesia history, your physical findings, your concerns, um, and you know any other pertinent information that may affect the style of anaesthesia that you would recommend or whether you would potentially even recommend doing a procedure. So it's not, look, it's not often that we would say, oh, hell no, we're not doing a procedure, like we're, we're not anaesthetising this patient. But the thing is there are, you know, we, we do come across people that are particularly high risk and that is as people get older and get more comorbid, the risks definitely increase. But at the same time, we've managed to improve our safety a lot. So um, in saying that, we would basically check in to see, okay, make sure we've got the right patient, all those usual things. Yeah, yeah. Um, does the patient even know that there's been, you know, that there's there's been a question raised about if they need surgery? You'd be surprised how many people have no idea. Um, you need to look at their, their previous history. So, you know, have they had a previous anaesthetic problem? Like, do they have malignant hypothermia? Mm. Which basically, for those who aren't aware of what that is, basically it's a nasty inherited disorder where your body has problems with calcium um, and it basically makes you overheat and do all sorts of horrible things and that gets induced by some of our uh, anesthesia medications. So very important but very rare condition. That's one of our, um, we use methoxyfluorane. That's one of our contraindications for methoxyfluorane. Absolutely. Hospital. Yes, mm. yes, absolutely. So yeah, volatile, that's to say, like volatile anesthetic agents, including your methoxy, um, and also our, uh, our depolarizing muscle relaxants. So succinamethonium um, is another one. Mm. So yes, segue. Um, so you want to know about that kind of stuff. Um, you want to know also, did they have a really rough time after anaesthesia? Like, did they end up like sick as a dog? Um, did they end up, did we have breathing problems? Did they arrest? Like, did, did something else happen? We want to know about it. Um, other things, you're going to go through your usual medical history. You know, your cardiovascular, respiratory, GIT, haematology, um, endocrine, all those things. So you treat that much the same. You want to know, do they drink, do they smoke, um, any recreational stuff, um, all that kind of stuff. And then it comes down to looking at, there are certain things that we look at examination-wise that sort of pique our interest. So um, certainly for us, like if you look at somebody and go, oh, wow, that, that person looks like they've got a very short, short neck or they have a very, like they can't move their neck very far. Um, they might have a small mouth, like they can't open it up very far. Um, they might not be able to follow instructions. So you're going, hang on a second, is this person able to even understand or consent to what I'm, what I'm potentially proposing? Um, you might want to have a look at things like even just their general appearance, like, you know, in terms of general condition. Um, but there are certainly things that we specifically would look for. So one of those things would be a Mallon Paddy score. Um, which essentially what this is, is you get someone to open their mouth and you make a judgment as to how difficult do you think it's probably going to be to get a tube in there or some sort of airway device. Really, if you look at that scientifically, we actually look at how much soft palate versus hard palate is what you can actually see. So that would be my better recommendation for how to describe that. Um, other things which sound a little bit silly, but are very important are even things like how much can they move their jaw? Um, you know, can they, can they look right up to the ceiling? Can they look all the way down? Can they stick their jaw out like they're biting their top lip? A lot of people think that we're kind of taking the mickey when we do that, but it's actually very important information because when you're manipulating someone's airway, you're actually, you're doing those, you know, your jaw thrusts and your chin lift maneuvers. 
that's the kind of stuff that you want to be able to to fall back on if you're having trouble with managing an airway and that's the first stuff that we all basically do so that's why it's kind of nice you're sort of working out how much does stuff move and should it move that much or should it move more so that's that's my quick and dirty um now the other thing would be is obviously if there are particular concerns that need to be addressed beforehand so my thoughts would be is this patient anticoagulated um have they recently had a, like a coronary event like have they had a stent like you know they had a heart attack and a stent in the last couple of months um how urgent is this procedure like you really want to look and say three things right we make sure we've got the right patient and the right procedure you want to work out is this urgent or is this not and if it is not why are we doing it now mm. <laughs> um because that, that's your main thing you just really want to know what is it that's making us want to do this right now is it because the patient's really septic and we really we need to get some source control um or is this because this is the patient's third presentation and no one's really found anything and we're sort of still scratching our heads and we're just biting the bullet like what what is this mm. um so they're they're kind of the main thing so it is it's really risk versus benefit for me that's mm. they're, they're kind of that would probably be the first things that would pop into my head um and in terms of communication look yes often when we get a referral for anesthesia review it's generally coming from a surgical team um, it does sometimes come from medical teams but it's often surgery because they're going to be saying well okay we want to do this thing these are our reasons um can we do it and so that's where you kind of have to negotiate because they might be very keen and say look we really want to do this thing but then you might be turning around saying well actually we need we need to sort these things out like okay this guy has apparently got a heart got a bad heart how bad <laughs> what's it doing mm. does anyone know you know we, we kind of try to get as much information as we can if the time allows mm. in an emergency scenario you really don't have that time to stuff around but when you do you make the most of it that's that's pretty much what i would say yeah yeah so preparation is key for sure oh absolutely Definitely. yes yeah. yes yeah. yes yes and you referred to um just before a patient having i guess the capacity to understand yep. what you're what you're doing um Ooh, have yeah. you had patients that you think oh they don't have they don't even absolutely. have absolutely yeah yes yeah absolutely so this is the other thing is that no matter what area of medicine that you're working within you are still the patient's advocate so you know if anything if at some point something just does not add up definitely speak up about it i like i definitely have a tendency for that and i have a low threshold just because i like people to kind of know well look just because you've got a doctor or someone that looks very doctory or something coming up to them saying you need this thing just sign here or i'll just go with whatever you say it's that's not necessarily a satisfactory measure of of uh you know what what's planned and i think the other thing is is that a lot of people there's there's a lot of that very it, it's sort of very much a oh i can't argue with what they're saying mm. or even really sort of looking at well you can get through a surgery or you can get through an anesthetic but how are things going to be afterwards like are we expecting your 95 year old nonna to be you know basically you know shooting hoops after she's gone and done a hip replacement you know like it, it depends where your expectations are mm. so that's really important too yeah yeah being your patient's advocate yep definitely mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome so we've talked about preparation um 
obviously in anesthesia there's so many different types of drugs you use are you able to just tell me the types of drugs you use and assessing the risks with drugs and things yeah certainly um okay first thing with drugs is look there's a lot of different ones um and obviously we keep finding that well we probably haven't had anything overly uh nothing's really changed dramatically dramatically like as of recently but the thing is is that i suppose one of the first common sense is if somebody says to you that they have a really good contraindication to you using a drug, you probably shouldn't use that. You probably shouldn't ignore that. If there is some sort of contraindication, ask. Find out what it is. Um, so one of the things you'd look at is if there's been a history before where someone's, you know, they've had an allergy or they've had, you know, they've had anaphylaxis and don't use it, those sorts of things. Um, types of drugs. Anesthesia is usually, like the, the way it's just described uh, traditionally is that it's a, it's a triad. So you have the, you have the anesthesia, so the hypnosis components, you've got the analgesia, um, and then you have muscle relaxation or paralysis basically. So, um, you know, the, the main things here to consider are for the drugs you're using, well, obviously your volatile anesthetic agents are drugs. So you're thinking, okay, am I going to use a volatile anaesthetic or am I going to use something different? So maybe, you know, maybe you might be using a a drip version, so a total intravenous anaesthetic, so no gas. Um, So you might use that for someone that's, uh, you know, they they might have problems with lots of nausea and vomiting after an anaesthetic. They might be somebody who's a malignant hypothermia patient, so you might not want, you definitely don't want to use volatiles for that patient. Um, You know, there, there are a couple of things you might consider. Um, other things you might consider, does this person actually need to have full, like do they, do they need to have that triad of anaesthesia for, um, you know, for, for the actual procedure itself? So if you have someone having a, like let's say it's a hip replacement or a knee replacement, do you need to do a general anaesthetic for that? You can, and a lot of people do, but you don't necessarily need to. So some people will do a form of anaesthetic called regional anaesthesia and neuroaxial anaesthesia, which all that basically means is if it's neuroaxial, we're actually instilling a combination of a painkiller and a local anaesthetic in near the spinal cord, and that provides the uh, the anaesthesia and the analgesia. And then you could also do with the regional component is where you're actually sort of picking off more peripheral nerves and essentially making those areas suitable for surgical manipulation without having the patient asleep. So. They're also options. So it might be, you might be thinking that for someone who's prone to, you know, if you think someone's like, if they're prone to delirium, uh, like a dementia risk and things like that, general anaesthetic can be a big problem. So we, we can actually, we can make people quite delirious from what we give them. Um, so that, that were probably a couple of really big things. Um, the type of surgery is gonna very much dictate your anaesthesia choice as well, as well as obviously where you've trained, what you're familiar with. Um, so look, there'll be some people which are very, very comfortable using, for example, they, they might go to say, all right, well, I like using fentanyl for all of my patients. I'm really familiar with it. It's very good in, you know, when I use it in my hands, it's very effective, I know how to use it well. Um, whereas someone also go, oh, well, I don't really like using fentanyl. Um, I prefer to use hydromorphone or I prefer to use ketamine. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of variation there. So there's no, no hard and fast rules. But generally what you're looking at is you're going to have your anaesthetic agent, which is basically keep the patient asleep or altered state of reversible medically induced coma. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got your analgesia because your anaesthetic agents, and this includes propofol as well, do not have analgesic properties. So you can't just, if you're gonna be doing something 
you know, nociceptive, or as in basically promoting a stimulus that is transmitting pain, you really shouldn't be doing that without some sort of analgesia. And the relaxation part, that's contentious, uh, but look, if you're needing to really make sure you want to control someone's ventilation, you don't want the patient moving around, um, you may also just find that, you know, it may actually just make for, you know, certainly from a surgical point of view, it just might make things a little bit easier in terms of what they're able to achieve. Um, then that's where your muscle relaxation may come in as well. So there's some of your other considerations. Mm. And does it take um, time to think about all your drugs you're going to use? So say if you've got an emergency patient coming in, mm -hmm. um, will you go a different route or will you always have a good look at what drugs you're going to use and prepare them? I would say, look, I think when you're first starting out, I think you sort of go, oh, wow, there's so many different ways I could do this. And as you go along, you could probably think the same way. It just depends. Uh, but look, I think for a lot of us, you kind of get a feel for what you like to use um, and what you're most comfortable using. And that's based on obviously your own experience. It can be based on, uh, you know, what you've learned, what people around you use. Um, and you know it's and that's the thing like you know things that get used routinely here in Western Australia um, may be quite different to what's used in the eastern states like there is a lot of that um, so yeah like that that really does vary but look I think for a lot of us if we you know if we were told okay we've got someone downstairs cardiovascularly unstable blah 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 we would have our own kind of little recipe in our heads as to what things we would prefer to use so they would be the first things that we would default to so we usually, most people just keep it very simple and that's not the time to experiment on people. <laughs> definitely. Let, let, let me assure you of that. We yeah. don't. We definitely do not do that. Yeah. And if, is there common mistakes made with drugs and drug choices in, in oh, your field? I would say so, yes. Um, look, even, look, part of it is, uh, look, my honest answer on that is if you're looking at it from the perspective of, like, as in like drug doses or are you talking yeah, just, about or yeah. mixing up syringes or dilutions or Dosages anything like that? and just common mistakes made. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So look, the way that we, again, as part of the training and of, of what we do, and it's also, look, this is where it's sort of a lot of aviation medicine comes in really well as well. Like you have the checks and the cross checks and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, what we normally do is for us, the biggest one of the biggest problems is if something's happening quickly and it's very you know if it is emergent emergent kind of stuff then yes people are you know they're task overloaded um that happens to the best of us and especially once you start involving more people because we all think great we need more pairs of hands i think the biggest issue we have is if you do have those pairs of hands and three or four different people are drawing up drugs there's a lot of dilutions for drugs that we use that are like i would say that they're largely quite universal however not everybody draws their drugs up the same way they may not label their medications the same way so this is where yeah this is where things start getting messy and we try and have this idea of a sterile cockpit in anesthesia so it means that if you are working with someone um, and you're, you know, you work with a bunch of people, you have one person that's designated to draw those drugs up. And whilst that person is drawing drugs up, you don't talk to them. Don't go and tell somebody about your weekend and don't, um, you know, and don't go asking them something stupid like, you know, oh, has the patient got a cannula when you know full well that they probably haven't? Or have you filled out this chart? 
I probably haven't <laughs> um, because we're we're trying to get things rolling so that's that's look that's a super common thing and even just because you've got a lot of people trying to also work out where they fit in the scheme of things then yeah even roles can get confused um, you know someone will think that you know they'll assume oh hang on I saw somebody giving um, that medication in that drip they might have assumed that was a round of adrenaline when in fact no it was a saline flush you know what I mean so these are the things that can happen so as a rule when things are going quite well <laughs> um, this is this this kind of stuff doesn't really happen but it's the bottom line is is that it can happen anywhere and it can also happen when you least expect it and it can happen when your so-called routine list because you've sort of it you know thing. if there's a human factor involved there will be errors Everyone Absolutely, makes mistakes. Yep. yes. Yep. yep. But it's always fixable, usually. Yes. Uh, yep. And the thing with medication errors, we take really seriously. Um, it's because yeah, that's the thing, like, that is a very, very rapid way to affect someone's outcome. We're lucky that a lot of things that we can do, uh, they may be of very minimal, uh, very minimal effect, but we do things that can be absolutely catastrophic. Um, there is no doubt about it. So, that's why we do we do any anything where we do have a report of medication errors um, or um, which are not just dilution of a drug it's the medication route um, you know it could be all sorts of things mm. and, and I you, think it, I, you guys have the same thing mm, like you have yeah. your right patient right route the right dose the right type of you know all that kind of thing it's yeah. that's essential to us too I think yeah I think medicine across the board drugs and medications are you know, you're, you're massive. You got to make sure you're you're safe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Che so look, checking in with your partners, things like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's and that can be very. You know, even that that point can be a little bit frustrating sometimes. Where you go, yes, of course it's this, but it's like you can't say that. <laughs> if 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 you give me a syringe, which you said, can you just give them? You know, can you just give them such and such of this? And I'll be like, well, you haven't got a label on it. I'm not going to give it. Mm. Um, yeah that that this is where it starts getting a bit tricky but as a rule no it's it's very easy to have errors but again we do a lot to try and avoid that 